Welcome everyone to Investing for Generational Wealth. Let us dive into the world of expert financial insights and strategies. Before we begin, a quick disclaimer, we are not financial advisors. All investments are subject to risks, including the possible loss of the money you invest. So perform your due diligence before making any financial and of decisions, and of course, consult your CPA and your attorney before making investments. I'm your host, Keshav Kalor, and I'm joined by my co-host, John Lai, and welcome to today's episode, Passive Investors, What to Expect from Sponsors. Today's guest is Andy McMullen. Andy's a seasoned real estate professional with two decades of expertise, currently serving as the founder and managing partner at Legacy Acquisitions, where he's also the director of acquisitions. Over the course of his career, Andy has facilitated over $750 million in real estate transactions. Additionally, he has overseen the acquisition of more than a thousand units. Thanks for being here with us, Andy. We gave a bit of your background on your experiences, but could you provide more detail on your background and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, I mean, I think that 750 million, that was before I met you, Keshif, and then that shot up a little bit, you know. Um, so my background is, is you know, I started off in the brokerage world right out of school in Los Angeles. I had met uh, somebody at college who had kind of introduced me to a boutique investment group, kind of the Marie Del Rey, Venice Beach, that area. And then uh, quickly kind of trans, we, we started doing development probably early 2000s, started to kind of sniff around and then did some development projects in Venice Beach. And then we kind of started to focus, you know, after the crash, I'm going to skip over the the, the scary parts uh, when we started to get back into investing in, you know, 2011, 12, more multifamily. And then in the last four or five years, really caught this built to rent bug. So building uh, communities in the Southeast that are built to rent. Um, and if we still like multifamily projects, uh, we still, it makes a lot of sense. We still bought some stuff last year, but that's kind of what we're focused on. So really trying to improve our systems management and development operations for built to rent communities. Yeah. And never, never a boring day at legacy acquisitions. No, of course not. It's um, too much fun. Way too much. Yeah. So with that, my first question to you, you have you know, decades of experience. Could you walk us through what your first passive investment was into a syndication and what that looked like? Like how you heard about it? Yeah. So as a passive investor? Passive investor. I'm sorry, I missed you. Yeah. yeah passive investor. As a, yeah. So, so um, gosh, you know, my first passive investment uh, kind of before even the Jobs Act, right? So- you know, the way I'm, you know, doing deals is more through relationships, friends and family, right? But back before, you know, that time, really 2016, and honestly, we couldn't, you know, really pick up the phones and start banging for dollars with 506C operations with, you know, I, I always want to make sure that I'm not using jargon. So 506, 50C operations where you can kind of market out to communities and then 506b it's got to be friends and family but you but you can you know be less than an accredited investor um so a lot of those deals were kind of put together with you know friends and family who you know etc so the first deal i got into is kind of um a friend who basically kind of had uh ties to a, a long-term mentor and you know i learned so much from that case i'll say the reason why is because 
there was so much I was in the dark about, which brought me so much anxiety. And because at that time, kind of transparency and communication was a lot less, um, you know, available, I should say, that you kind of always just waited till you got a call or maybe an update every once in a while. We did get quarterly reports, but if you've re reviewed some of these kind of private equity, you know, quarterly reports, they don't make a whole lot of sense to a young investor like me. So, so that was probably the first lesson is the communication. And then from there, I kind of went into some other deals with, you know, I can go into a whole number of red flags that I should have seen. But from there, I really decided that, that I'm going to get in the passive investing game because I do see the long-term, you know, um, benefits of it. I walked into my old mentor's office one day and, you know, we've been talking about all these deals and the office manager comes in and signs this check. It's like Irwindale six or something like that. And it's got tons of zeros on it. I had never once ever heard him talk about this deal ever once. It wasn't one of our active deals. He said, Oh yeah, I just invested in this deal about eight years ago. And, you know, we just sold it, you know? So that's kind of when I start, you know, Hey, maybe just the dialing for dollars brokerage type stuff. And I should do some passive and active deals. So that's a long winded answer on that. Okay. What were, and John, can you just give me like a cut it out? If I just go on too long, that's <laughs> going to be, you're in charge of that today. Okay. All right. What were some of the, like, that was your first syndication. How many, like where could you describe the deal? Like how many apartments was it? Where was it located? What was the business plan? Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first one, it was like, a, it was kind of like a, a, a mixed use project in Dallas. So, you know, it was going to be a heavy value add, you know, um, with some retail and office. So you'd have, you know, some larger kind of, you know, uh, office use and maybe some smaller ones. And then you'd have some frontage retail, um, now it's probably worth a, a boatload of money, but back then it was just going to be a heavy, heavy build. So I don't know, maybe it was a $3 million deal, something like that, maybe another few hundred thousand dollar budget. Um, and then shortly thereafter, started to get in some more kind of, you know, uh, multifamily projects, maybe kind of 50 to 70 units. Um some industrial deals, which, you know, in, in today's, today's market make a lot of sense. So really all kinds. I, I, I'm, I want to try to make sure that whatever that I'm answering benefits your listeners. So what, what, you know, what are some of the feedback that you've got from some of the people that you guys have talked to that are in this network? Uh, um, I, I had a couple of questions, which all revolve around, like the red flags you brought up earlier as an early investor and now, now looking back on it and this yeah. is the question we have in recap like what are some red flags that you typically look oh, for yeah. now knowing what you know well so so one is it's 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 frequently the case that you'll have a part-time operator so he may be a broker he may be you know in some other business that person doing it by itself is virtually going to get ill, right? Or they're going to go on vacation or whatever happens in that life 
So the team part was the one that I really didn't focus on. I was thinking of, hey, what's the dude like that's, you know, he's impressive, right? He knows his stuff and I know that he's done it before and he's experienced and got some gray hairs, et cetera. But I didn't really look into the team because I didn't know that you can't do all of that stuff on your own, right? Um, and then the other thing, John, that I think was really important is real estate is a business. Now, of course, Andy, duh, but most people that are doing multifamily don't run it that way, right? They don't run it in the sense, you, in, in the sense that it's a, a, a professional organization, right? A lot of operators have this kind of lifestyle brand where they're doing it, they're getting on pods, et cetera. They're talking about all these great deals that they're in, but they don't run it like a professional business. So if I was to kind of consult somebody coming in, I would really study the team, right? I mean, aside from the track record, that's an obvious thing that you hear all the time, but what is their operating system that's managing these properties and managing the property managers and managing the acquisition? So those are, those are two, I mean, there's, there's plenty more, but I think those are two big ones. That's great. How about how about the um how about this environment, right? Like you know we're at a relatively higher interest environment. You know historically it's not really that high, but people are are running around like it's the end of the world high. Yeah. Um and in you know in in uh, actuality it is affecting what uh, sponsors do right and how sponsors underwrite and uh, and um, act. So yeah. in this environment, it's stabilizing, but, but it's still call it a higher interest rate. Um, you know, what do passive investors look out for? And and there seems to be opportunities. Absolutely. Uh, how can they uh, leverage those opportunities? I think, I think if you think about, so I think about it from my perspective, I think about the context of what 2008 was like right? Because we were developing projects in Venice and the water just shut off for everybody, right? So it didn't matter whether you were good, poor, rich, whatever, You your your water was shut off, right? So, and it took th three, four years. Now they're still lending. Now you've got rate caps that are coming due, right? And so those people that got in the last couple of years, and I'm, I'm, I'm referring more to like multifamily, right? Because I think with development, it's a little bit of a different animal because you're building through the high interest climate um, as opposed to if you're looking for opportunities in the acquisitions of, you know, multifamily projects, um, you're looking at, hey, what is that debt and how long am I going to have to wait before I see a cash, you know, any cash flow at all? So we saw maybe, you know, nine months of e even we saw, you know, operators raising for that additional money so that they could pay cash flow throughout, you know, maybe it's quarterly. Um, but now I would be very leery if it's a new deal, um, if that operator, same operator saying, hey, we can still pay distributions in that six, nine, 12 month range, because it's not likely based on where the the cap rate to the amount of debt that they're playing, paying that they're going to see any cash flow for that first 18 months. So that would be the first thing is kind of temper expectations. The other thing that I would say is if there's opportunities for, um, you know, an assumption loan, right? Getting a deal where maybe you've got another few years, right? Eventually they'll come down a little bit. And if you look 
without getting too technical, if you were just look at a site like Chatham Capital and you were just to kind of see the all of the members of the Fed kind of have to weigh in on where they think rates are going to be, right? So you've got this kind of data set of where they think. Now, that doesn't mean it could be changing tomorrow. It's just their view today of where they think rates are going to be. Most of them say that they're coming down in that 24, 25. So I don't think people will get stuck. But what that does mean for the passive investor is, again, operator, person that's been through two, three cycles, because they're going to, you don't. I always tell people, something's going to go wrong, right? We talk about it all the time, Keisha. If something's going to go wrong, we don't know what it is. It could be interest rates. It could be insurance, right, that bumps up. It could be some um, political uh, private partnership that blows. It, it, there's something, right, that will that will happen. So those are the kinds of things that I think are opportunities. And then the other thing, you know, um, there there are so many opportunities I've seen lately for investors to really take advantage of some of those higher uh, level operators, ones that have a net worth, have a liquidity, that need capital in uh, no way that they ever have before, right? They've got to be a lot more scrappy. And as a result, there are operators that are now willing to put their balance sheet, put their net worth on the table and say, hey, look, I know that you can't wait 18 months. I know that you don't want to wait 18 months. Here's a 12% return. Here's a 10% return. Here's a 14% return. We will guarantee that for you, for that ability for us to use at our discretion, that capital that we need to keep our projects going. So that could be an opportunity where investors are sitting higher up in the, the capital stack, right? Paid out before others. That might be something that, that guys could look at. That's right. Thanks. How would you balance that, like the allocate if uh, investors brought both like an equity opportunity and like you said, that ability to lend on a short-term basis with some collateral and some advantageous terms, how would you recommend investors like approach that? Like what should they look for? How should they balance their yeah. portfolio? Or like, I know a lot of people, like you said, a lot of people are leaning towards that fixed income rather than equity right now. Yeah, I would. I mean, so so there there is this what you what you're alluding to is really smart because there is this like there's this fine line between how much collateral can you expect to get from an operator who's you know got a really high net worth and a lot of liquidity, and how much collateral are you willing to accept from somebody that maybe isn't experienced, right? Like if you're to invest in a a flipper, right? Maybe, or you're investing in a small project, maybe you get that asset, right? So maybe that's your collateral. Um, but if they fail, now you've got a beaten down version of whatever that collateral was with maybe fewer tenants, maybe, you know, fire, maybe a management problem, whatever that is. So that's kind of on the one side of it. And it's a single asset without that kind of diversification. On the other side of it, what you may be able to pull off is what they call a pocket judgment. And what that means is instead of the operator maybe fighting you with, you know, let's say that they defaulted on a, on a project that you invested a couple hundred thousand, right? 
or they, they let's say they defaulted on even better. Let's use our example loan, right? They defaulted on that 14% loan that you've been given. Now you've got a pocket judgment in place, which basically means it's a more potent uh, personal guarantee. So rather than kind of having to fight for those assets that are owned by that operator, right? And if you pick a GP, you've got two or three or four guys that are competent. Now you've got a pocket judgment, which basically means immediately at the default without some cure period, right? Now you can call those interests in whatever they had, a property, um, you know, business, you know, wages, whatever that would be. So it's kind of a, a head start to, as opposed to just a straight personal guarantee. To me, if I'm personal guaranteed something, I'm putting up my house, that should be enough. Um, if somebody with a high net worth is putting up a lot of, of that, but I get that I also don't want to spend months in court trying to get whatever that interest is in, in that particular asset. So I don't know if that's helpful or not, but that's kind of the what I'm seeing that the operators are benefiting from. Gotcha. Okay. Let's see. And when you're looking yeah. at, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, when you're looking at these deals, you have a lot of things to consider, right? Like the operator, the financials, the geographic location. Um, where do you stack these on number ones? Like this is the most important, number two, number three, et cetera. Yeah. Oh, that's a great question. Um, when I'm investing in, and I, I'm investing in the people without a doubt. Um, it could be a, a market that may be less favorable, but it's somebody that I know that's done it. And I can kind of, you know, with almost anything that we do in life, and you guys know it, especially in the, in the world that you live in, things start to come in focus after you put in the time with the data, right? You start to kind of triangulate some of those data points and it starts to, to paint this picture. So for instance, the people that you're working with, they might be likable, but they're a little bit newer. So there is some risk there, right? They might be sharp as hell, but there is some risk there if they haven't had those kind of, you know, choppy waters along the way. Now, even if they bring in an elder statesman, oftentimes that elder statement statesman doesn't have the same power that that younger operator is. So that's, that's one of those kinds of things. That's the first thing. In the market, I want everything that I look at to be defensible. So the market conditions, John, you asked some really good questions about, well, how do you counteract the fact that we're dealing with interest rates that could go on, you know, through 2025, you got insurance that's basically up three times where it was. You're telling me now that you're going to operate a property at 60% as opposed to where you may have been at 45 or 50. So they got to be able to defend those tough questions. And a lot of times they can defend that by growth, right? We talk about population growth. We talk about, you know, uh, job growth. Um, the other thing that I think that people don't consider is like, what, where, where are those areas where crime is, is really low, right? Because those are usually the areas that people want, but it doesn't show up in like all those kind of fancy markets. It could be a smaller market. It could be, you know, something that's kind of got maybe 200,000 or 250 Metro, but it's got all these other pieces of it. So um, I know I'm not even, I, I know, I, I know you were hoping to kind of get a, you know, a magic bullet or, or one, but if I was to go with kind of the, the biggest 
um, thing that I'm looking at. It's the opera because they can answer so many of the other questions, right? Yeah. And I remember, you know, as an example, when we first met, and that was a couple of years back, maybe three years back. I mean, you had a list of like, what's the 50 questions that you went through? I mean, at the end of the call, I was like, this dude, uh, <laughs> I mean, he's going to be, he's going to be incredibly successful, but he also might be a complete nuisance. I mean, we should just talk about your 50 questions. <laughs> yeah. Two years back, it was September, 2021. And it was it. Yeah. I was still sweating from that that call. <laughs> I think both of those statements might be true. I think I'm um, hopefully I'm providing some value, but I definitely know I'm a nuisance sometimes. So, oh man, that's the best. That's the best, man. Well, uh, you know, I I don't know if I can I can say what my my wife we we've I've had some personal time with Kate, both Keish and John, and and uh, my my wife is just she's she's in love with Keish, so I keep them keep them away as much as possible. <laughs> That's why I live in New York and you're in San Diego. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, what are you uh, personally invested in? Or or let me flip that around and say, um, people in our audience might have 50K, 100K or so. If they were investing in something now in this environment um, and with a little bit of diversification in mind, like what would you recommend uh, would be a sound investment? Obviously, yeah. you know, uh, we're in real estate. Um, people need um, need to live somewhere or yeah. own something, right? So that's that's top of mind. But yeah, uh, if you were to like expansive field, even beyond real estate, what would you? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I think I think there's a huge opportunity for now for businesses like to be investing in businesses now. You know, obviously, I know that your question, John, considers like risk versus reward, right? And is this the last 50 or a 50 or a fund 50,000? But, but I think just when you consider where interest rates are and you kind of consider what the population is, right? You kind of look at those outside down dynamics. Like we, you know, we were looking at as you know, we were looking at the built to rent development stuff. We were thinking about, well, this is before COVID. Well, where does, you know, what's happening with suburbanization anyways? Why doesn't anybody care about, the picket fence like I did growing up you young guys don't but you know why why are there a lot more people moving to the, to the suburbs you know why can you buy land that's so much less expensive and so quicker to build in places in the south than you can where I'm located in the west so I'm just kind of considering all of those factors why you know do we have the largest gap of you know rent here to the cost of ownership, right? Which now I think it's in that a thousand dollar delta. So that's a huge gap that you've got a lot of people that need homes. And if you follow, you know, any uh, any metric, it's usually in that two point five up to six, you know, million folks that need housing. Um, so that was kind of that was kind of like what we were thinking about, right? But but some people might think, well, yes, but I gotta wait two, three years before I ever see a return, right? So I got to potentially invest in a development project that goes through all the entitlements, goes through all the, you know, um, horizontal infrastructure, streets, roads, and utilities. And then I get cash, maybe a much bigger ultimate number and maybe a great cash flow down the road, but that 50 grand is kind of stuck there. What if something happens, right? So I think it does mean, but like for a business, I've seen a lot of people really, looking at like, you know, maybe I put my 50 grand to work and I 
invest with somebody that's already doing it or that's bowing out and maybe I can make some cash there. Um, I definitely still believe in storage. You know, obviously we talk about multifamily a lot, but then I just think the markets are thinner and the areas are, are thinner. Um, but so, yeah, so I, I would, you know, I would also tell the person that's kind of their, their first 50 or maybe their first, you know, invest, you know, there's no real excuse now to not become educated, right? They can show up and talk to Sean and Keshav. They can get to webinars. There's, there's plenty of, you know, blogs, et cetera. So I think, as we talked about before, we'll kind of come into focus with what's happening around us. Um, I love this, you know, we could probably talk about AI. I don't know how can we get into it, right? Or how can we use it in our businesses or how can we buy a business that's an old mom and pop and turn it into, you know, a new age business. Those are the things that, that I think are exciting. Yep. That's great. Great answer. I mean, and I also would add on to that uh, and layer onto it, like your investment horizon, as you say, right? Like built to rent is great for like the, you know, if you get in early enough and you have the willpower, you can stand uh, into it for like two, three years and you can see that, you know, risk adjusted return and, uh, and enjoy that return. Um, and then if you want an additional like 50K and early on, you can invest something near term and, you know, hopefully it's not, uh, well, I, I'm not gonna say hopefully it's not, but uh, it's not um, uh, like a flip property in these days in this market. But if you have that wherewithal, or if you know someone that uh, has that knowledge, then that might be a quick, quick win, quick return, right? Absolutely, a rental or something like that. You, you know, if, if you've got if you got a friend who's an operator and he's willing to put you in, you know, I put a couple of college buddies in, a couple of high school, but now I'll tell you that's a tough, tough call when things aren't going great, right? Because sometimes mm -hmm. they aren't. Um, but but if, if they feel that confident about a deal and you trust them. Excuse me, that, that might be a good opportunity. Yep. Um, the other thing, John, is like, you know, a, a 50,000 doesn't necessarily need to be put in one investment. Like as much as you can try and spread it out, there's investors, there's operators that will take 25K for one deal and 25K for another deal or say, hey, look, I'll give you 25K here, but I need, you know, 12% return back on that. I want that to be just kind of a private note. I don't need any you know, collateral, I just want, I trust you and I want that to be private and paid out monthly. So give me some cash and then I'll put something long-term. I think there's ways to to move that around with most people in this market. Yep. Like okay, cool. So we are coming up on 30 minutes. So let's uh, take it out with our classic, the three questions we like to end with. First one, describe some of the failures you had along the way and what you learned from them. Um, you know, you know what the, what, what this might be, this might sound really simple, like for like a simple person, you know, um, get, get over yourself. That, that would be the, that would be the thing. Like there, there are so many smarter people. There's so many talented people. There's so many richer. There's like, there's on your team right now, there's going to be people that have one trait that's better. So the sooner that you can realize that you're going to be dumb with something or you're going to be you're going to suck at something, the sooner that you're able to build people around you that make you better. Like that's that's to me the the simplest. And then the other thing that I would say is trust your instincts. Right. Because 
nobody knows the all of the kind of angles that you've studied if you've been preparing you know you could go to you know gray hair just because you think he's wise and smart but he doesn't know anything about what you're asking him and so you're going to get this this answer and that might impede your your progress so um of the failures that i've had k-shift they've been there's been some you know all of them right pride uh you know um ego comes into it you know thinking that you know you're so certain about something that's just not true right um so those are all things that that kind of creep up and they manifest themselves so because i know you're asking for specific deals they manifest themselves in kind of like this this slow deterioration of a of a deal or a team or a network right it's because you're afraid to have the conversation that you know you should be having they're afraid to have the conversation as a result things start to slip property manager management stops to sit asset management starts to flip and then you you got then you got these tough calls you got to make to investors so all of that comes into having strong people that you can stand you know on the shoulders of or have or, or them in Keshav's case he's on standing on my shoulders not that yeah <laughs> no and it, it's a great view it is a great view um <laughs> For those who are just getting started out as passive investors in this, you know, private investment space, syndications, whether it's, you know, real estate, debt funds, whatever it is, what's, what do you think is the greatest fallacy or falsehood that they shouldn't get blinded by? Yeah, that's, that's a good one. Um, if you were to take, and this has been done in various versions, I think, um, Peter Lindman would be a really good resource for you guys to consider um, because he's basically kind of taken all of the years, let's just say, you know, hundred years, the number of studies, but they just take a hundred years, right? Or even over a 10 year period, let's even cut it up to 10 years. If you were to take any 10 year chunk of real estate, right? This is talking about multifamily. I'm just, let's just use multifamily as exact example. It does apply to office as well. It does apply to other asset classes, but let's just take multifamily. Any 10 year period, you would, and you average them out, you would never have a down year. You would never have a down year. Now you, now if you took one year or five year and that's your sample size, you'll have some, you know, some peaks and you'll have some, some valleys. But I think if, if people kind of consider it's very easy to live in the moment. Now, I understand some people, they got to be able to pay a mortgage and they've got this debt that's, that's kind of, you know, drowning them. And they've got this, you know, rate cap that's, you know, that's expired and they got to dump this property. And you got the, the lender and you got investors that want to get there. I understand being in that situation. But I think if people can kind of take the long view about any investment, and some of those losses that you take along the way, right? I just got a call two weeks ago from somebody, you know, we're probably going to lose some money on an investment. That's that's part of the risk reward. But if I'm taking all of that into consideration, you know, there's a net net gain there. So I think the, the fallacy is that people tend in real estate to talk about the risk. And, and that's true. There's certainly risky deals, but the idea of investing is not risky. The idea of being consistent and investing is not risk, risky. Gotcha. And lastly, this is something I admire about you very much. So, so uh, choose any of the many facets you can answer this question with, but how do you give back to your okay. community? 
Oh man, this so this, like I'm. I think you hit a certain age, probably, and I maybe I can't take as much credit for. I think I've always been of service. Like I, I have a heart for service. Um, I think if there has been any success, it's usually been based on a relationship that I had or some person that kind of helped me along the way that I didn't deserve. So I do try to be, um, you know, be aware of those people that are trying to break in. So I, I'm happy to talk to anybody that's listening here that would just love to have another resource, maybe referrals, et cetera. But for me, the, the thing that I most get jazzed about Keshav is, um, is teaching. So in, in my church, I'll, I'll teach a youth group, high school kids, young kids, um, you know, I'm a deacon there. I get a lot of joy out of that. And I get a lot of joy out of these networks, which I didn't always in, at your guys age, I didn't always enjoy going to these places, but over time it's like leverage, right? You know, um, you know, what is it that, uh, what is it that, that Albert Einstein talks about, he talks about like, um, you know, what's this, what's the eighth one in the world, Keisha? I thought it was compound interest. Yeah, compound interest, but it's not really, right? It's it's leveraged compound interest, right? Like if you consider the the amount of leveraged compound interest and you can use somebody else's money to compound your interest, right? That's the eighth one in the world. So that's the way I kind of think of relationships. It's it's you know paying it forward, but it's going to be somebody that you can help. It's going to be somebody that introduces you to somebody. It's going to be me answering fifty questions, and then an ace comes in and he says, "Hey, I want to help you," and he builds helps you grow your business. So, um, you know, I'm not saying that you do it with the expectation, but when you put that out into the world, that's just what happens. It's just it's just the way that the world works, right? We can't do a whole lot of deals sitting in our underwear in the in the you know comfort of our home consistently, right? We can do it for a little while, but we got to get out there and work with people. So that's what yeah. I try to do help. And then that kind of flows into the what we want to do with our communities, right? Is we want to be able to bless these communities. We think of them as residents. That is their home. And that's kind of what we're hoping to achieve in this game. It doesn't have to be so mercenary what we do, you know. Gotcha. And thank you for that. Well, we just had a question come in here uh, from one of the attendees. How does single family built to rent, single family home built to rent compare with multifamily built to rent? And this is a good question because I never really understood. You'll see these news articles where someone says, so-and-so is building an apartment building that's built to rent. But to me, apartments were, my default's always oh, yeah. rented, unless it's like a, you know some nice condo in Upper East Side, Manhattan. But if you could, yeah, it it, it is it, it is interesting that we kind of think of it that way, right? Because of course, the apartment building is building for rent. Um, when in two thousand eight, you, you know, hit two thousand ten, we started buying up. We even even us as kind of a smaller boutique firm would be buying up salt mall houses and we'd be renting them out. But it was so inefficient. You have one. LA, one in Inglewood, one in, you know, South Bay, and you were trying to manage it. It's just incredibly inefficient. So, you know, in 2012, 2013, you started to see a little bit, but it was more 15, 16, where, oh yeah, it makes sense. 
as apart American Homes for Rent, which was, you know, Blackstone or, or any of these larger kind of institutional bodies, they said, hey, why don't we just build them next to each other and manage them like we would apartment buildings. And now we've got all the efficiencies of maybe 30 to 40 percent expenses. But what I think is the biggest difference to me, what the biggest uh, benefit of us building um, built to rent single family homes is that I do believe that most people would like to have backyards. They'd like to have the community around them. Um, they'd like to to be able to kind of have their own barbecue. We can cut the to cut the grass. They don't have somebody below or uh, above. They they stay longer because of the community. And from just like an economic perspective of, it makes more sense because as soon as I build one home, usually in a community. So let's say I'm building, say a two hundred. Uh, person a 200 apartment building um 200 unit apartment building versus you know 200 homes that we're building maybe we're renting them a little bit more but i build that one single house i can rent it and then i can get a cfo and then i can rent the next one and i can rent the next one so it's yeah. it's a little bit easier for me to kind of manage cash flow or our cash flow as a business as opposed to waiting two years to get the cfo for the apartment building when there's a lot of different factors that could you know, could derail the project. If the sky is falling and I've built 24 homes, I could just stop taking my draws and just manage those 24 homes. So I think that's probably the, those are some differences. I don't know, Kreisha for John, what, what other ones you might be thinking of that I'm, that I'm not hitting. The CFO, well, quick CFO means certificate of occupancy. That just allows you to lease up. Yeah. Um, but like you said, the CFO is a big deal. I think also with single family homes, it, it broadens your exit options where you could sell it off as like subdivisions if you have it, you know, platted the right way or sell it off as single family homes or you could manage it as a single, you know, rental community. So it gives you a couple of options on the back end when you go to sell. Yeah. And then I also like think... Um Go ahead. Go ahead, Keisha. Like you said, like, the show, man. The lifestyle. Uh, just the fact that you have that backyard, a garage, these amenities. You don't have to deal with someone up above you or below you or to either side of you. I know, personal story, when I was growing up, I would always jump around a lot as a kid. And um, when I was like three or four. And so my we had to move often because the people below us would always complain. That <laughs> So that's not something you'd run into in a built-in single-family home. And that wasn't because you were asking so many questions. That's no. what they told you because you were <laughs> like, oh, man, this kid, Keisha, he's pulling up again. Here you go. Um, yeah, you know, the other thing is that we've, we started to learn as we've been doing this, Keisha, and you've been doing a lot of kind of interaction with the cities that we're developing in. In some cases, they love just the feel of us building housing for folks. I mean... Of course, you, there's more density in apartments, right? But if we can build like eight or nine per acre, it looks just more spacious. It it, be, it just kind of resonates more with the community as you're driving around. It feels much more like, you know, a suburban market, which is where the tax dollars you know start to come in and the growth starts to come in. So, exactly, yeah, it is a much more, I don't know, much closer to the American dream and builds, like you said, a much better sense of community because of the shared amenities instead of just being cooped up in apartments. And I think that, you know, 
political animals, as it were, love the idea of not having to deal with the nimbyism. And it's a little bit easier when you've got, you know, a community that's going, that's next to another one that's probably likely raising the, the value because there are going to be new entities. It's a renter community by choice, right? These are a lot of times folks that can't afford homes, but prefer not to pay that $1,000 Delta we talked about before. So it's a little bit uh, more defensible for that, you know, community leader to to get through his cronies than it is apartment project. And and I guess for the investor, um, because the residents stay much longer, right? It's uh, the churn is uh, lower in a built to rent home or just homes in general uh, than in apartments. You know, you expect that people will leave within a year in apartments. Whereas in built rent, they stay much longer than that. Yeah, and you think, you know, you know, just the cost alone is is interesting, right? If you're your operating expense and managing something is 38% as opposed to maybe 48% for apartment building. That's one thing, but the turns are really expensive, right? As you mentioned, John, like a, a tenant staying three years, right? And you're you're turning in. That stuff is it's new stuff too. But the the additional benefit of that is like a, a community, like when somebody's your neighbor for longer than a year or two years and they've got a house and they're walking the dog and it's not apartments that are kind of coming in and out the elevator right to the garage where the car's going in and out to work. You know, people want to be there, right? So they'll pay the extra increases, provide you're paying value, you're, about, you're, you're giving them value. And so um, that's part of the reason that they stay longer. And I, I think three honestly in our i think three is a little bit low because we're still remember we're still in the very early innings of this and i know we're talking about just passive investing in general but that's the, that's kind of what i hope passive investors think about is like well what is next like is ai going to change this particular business or this particular market or is development the fact that we have this housing crunch Maybe there's some other business associated with that. Maybe prop tech is associated with that, where now every house, especially in the South, you can turn on your air conditioning from your car, right? Or your heat from your car. Like there's a lot of those kinds of things that think about how everything seems to be changing. Gotcha. Okay. Well, with that, we let's wrap it up. So Thank you very much for a great presentation, Andy. Um, to learn more about passive investors and what to expect from sponsors, feel free to reach out to Andy at his email, andy at legacyacquisitions.com. And we will include his phone number um, and his email, like his contact information in general, in the description for this podcast episode. Thank you for educating us on passive investors and what to expect from sponsors. And so thank you for taking the time at your busy schedule to speak to us about some of these important topics, right? Like what your first investment looked like, how to navigate the current market and things to look out for in an investment, red flags, things like that. And for those of you- Yeah, we've got, just to, just to add, we've got a couple of reports for people who are curious about seeing some of our stuff on our website, legacyacquisitions.com. You can kind of see some of these things that we've talked about. and. Yeah, there's hundreds of things of, you know, underwriting or we didn't get it to, to you know, deal structures, all that stuff. Anybody's curious about it, yeah, 
please give us a call. We'd love to help you. Yeah. You, I've probably already asked the question that they have in their mind anyway. So it's probably somewhere in there. Um, and with that, so for those of you listening, don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening to to make sure that we can continue bringing you the best educational content. Thanks, everyone. And until next time, keep learning to invest for generational wealth.